kicking off the most dis, you know important discussions last week we did a call on pensions so mm-hmm. everybody here you know converting pensions into physical metals um we will get that up right vicky <laughs> yep <laughs> um and that's just you know another resource if you guys find value in buying from them go you know click their link and then i think if you use their vault it you know you can save a little bit um but you know that's just an opportunity for those looking to either roll over a pension or have a pension through this self investment uh, little SIP, you know that that's available in the UK. Um, and then obviously, I had a ton of questions around XRP, and Jimmy, particularly this buyback, right, which ever sent everybody's head spinning. Um, and, you know, when, the, when I kept hearing like, oh, be careful, there's, you know, there's a scam there. I was like, oh, my goodness, that is not the truth at all. I mean, let's just hear the man out. And that's why um, when I started getting some of the emails and, you know, hearing about this confidential committee, um, you know, it was it made sense, you know, just to kind of speak to you. So thank you for making time to join us. Well, I want to address some of these questions we have like why participate in the buyback you know why (laughs) if people sell what's the upside you know that kind of stuff and how much does the xrp need and you know why sell back to you know the sdr why participate all this why one percent for val hill capital like all these issues you know questions that people have they're you know which are perfectly you know explainable there's there you know um so Jimmy, I'm just going to kick it off because I think most people have seen your email, your interviews um, okay. on other, you know, with you know Molly and uh, Zach and Lulu. Um, so your mergers and acquisition by trade, your lawyer. Right. And my understanding was when I first heard about this by our mutual friend James Rule, um, this was just a way of you know you know understanding the kind of depth of scope of corruption that's happened within the sec and anticipating that the more we uncover the more that will be questioned the more that will be demanded to be held to account right these hinman emails yeah and the, and the corruption unraveling there that there you saw a you know a, a potential lawsuit and and a lot of greed within the government being exposed and therefore created this marker in the sand a milestone if you will um that you know said okay well we were in the middle of a bear run or excuse me a bull run you know xrp was on its way up and then december 2020 we get this outrageous lawsuit um filed that not only plummeted the the price, those of us that actually use XRP for our daily transactional business, you know, payments um, are now suffering because we're, you know, liquidating more than we have to. And we demand some kind of, you know, some kind of uh, something for the damages done to this, right? And you looked at the Ripple lawsuit and said, okay, they spent a hundred million defending themselves in this outrageous, egregiously, you know, expensive uh, lawsuit. And we're going to kind of say together as an XRP, you know, all the holders demand similar, right? And then that's where you get your price. 
Uh, well, well, most of everything you said is 100% correct. Uh, around like that 100 million, we'll, we'll get to talking about that because a lot of people, I think, um, open up the document and they just, they don't want to read the text, which I understand. <laughs> it's on legalese. It's in the way, you know, uh, transactional lawyers speak to each other and bankers speak to each other in term sheets and legal documents and that type of thing. So I understand that, but uh, unfortunately, what 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 people do is they just go through it and they look for a number, and you know a, a lot was made out of the hundred million in, in there, but that's not that's not our fee. Our fees actually would probably be quite a bit higher than that, um, and and it's not it, what, what that was is an estimate of expenses. But but let, let's put that aside. I want to go. You basically perfectly encapsulated why we started the buyback process, what it was intended to address. Um, and from my perspective, again, after over 20 years of practicing corporate securities law, mostly M&A, a lot of securities offerings as well, and very high level for major law firms, this is kind of what I do. And um, as soon as the lawsuit hit, it was super weird because we had done a ton of due diligence pre-lawsuit into whether XRP was a security and stuff like that. And there was already pre-existing precedent from FinCEN and other regulatory agencies, including certain things that the SEC had been a part of, which deemed or, or, or you know, stated that XRP was a virtual currency. And so um, when the lawsuit happened, and, and we didn't know a lot of stuff that we started to learn after the fact, but as soon as it happened, and remember, it wasn't a unanimous vote among the SEC commissioners. It was a majority vote, 3-2, Chairman Clayton at the time with a tie-breaking vote to even bring the lawsuit. So the day it happened, when you have kind of that go down in, in the context of we've been living in a world post uh, Bill Hinman's speech from 2018, where he basically said, if you've got a project that is significantly decentralized, you're not a security. We don't think that it makes sense for the security laws to be applied. I don't think anybody up until that time really believed that um, the XRPL was not as decentralized as Ethereum or Bitcoin. Uh, in fact, there's quite a few arguments that it's quite a bit more decentralized than that. Um, so under those standards, the lawsuit really made no sense. It seemed immediately to us that it had been used as a weapon. And then as the, the months started to click by, um, more and more things started to come out. We ended up learning that, that uh, Professor Joseph Grunfest, who was a Stanford uh, law professor, I think he still is, uh, and he's, he's a former SEC commissioner himself, wrote a letter to all five commissioners five days before the lawsuit, basically saying, you can't do what you're thinking about doing. Number one, there's no difference between Ethereum and, and XRP. But the bigger thing is, he says, I know of no circumstance in history, in the history of securities law, absent um, uh, seeking, you know, to prove fraud or misrepresentation or something like that, where you will end up causing simply by dropping the action, simply by filing the action, you will cause billions of dollars to innocent third parties. That certainly put them on notice that they needed to think of a different, less damaging way to go forward with 
with trying to provide regulatory clarity to the market. I can think of it, Hester Peirce already had her, um, her three-year safe harbor idea had been out for a few years, I think at that point, a couple, couple of few years. Uh, and, and she ended up, you know, restating it, I think in, in 2021. Um, and basically it provided for, you know, if, if you start a new project, there should be some period where you're able to basically bring it to the, the, the state of decentralization. And if you do that, within the three years, then your project is not a security and you can go on. Or if you're getting to the end of the three-year period and it's clear that it is being used as a security because you're using it to, to raise money for your project effectively, uh, then you need to register it as a security. So uh, that seemed like a very reasonable type of thing. I was commenting on this in, in you know, February and March um, uh, after, the, um, after the lawsuit was filed. And it was just no response, you know, and um, and the more that this kept going on, they ended up changing a rule. Um, uh, there was an acting chairman in between the time Clayton and Gary Gensler before Gary Gensler was confirmed as chairman uh, that, that uh, Commissioner Lee acted as acting chairman and kind of went in and, you know, unilaterally changed one of the rules that could have been applicable to the settlement of the Ripple case. Um, it, that was that was super weird. Even Jeremy Hogan did a couple of videos on it at the time. Uh, so by the time we got to the summer, I was very convinced that there was something very, very wrong uh, going on within the government. I had no idea there was all this other stuff going on with the government that is starting to become more mainstream now. Uh, I mean, the, the SEC isn't the only problem. Uh, uh, in, in, in the, the, the federal government right now by a long shot. But at that time, it was who has the power to basically direct the SEC. Uh, and, and basically, even if the commissioners may want to do a certain thing, like you had at least two of them do in connection with commencing the lawsuit, um, who has the power to, to direct them and make them bring a lawsuit a, as a weapon and then maintain it even when Frankly, from a, a, a lawyer's standpoint, there's a requirement that your your pleadings actually state a claim, right? And it's into issues in, in you know, these types of situations. We're talking about regulatory enforcement actions, things like prosec prosecutorial discretion. And, you know, prosecutors don't bring every case. There's a reason because, you know, some cases have bad facts. And so they'll turn out bad facts, turn out to be bad law. And this was certainly one of those cases that up until that time, they weren't even stating a claim. Remember, they, they were kind of at that time going, we're not making a determination whether as the, uh, whether XRP is a security. That's up for a court to decide. So here we were, you know, all of us, you know, holders out here and, and, and people who wanted to, to build um, businesses and, and payment systems and use the XRPL to, you know, communicate not only value, but data, other things, um, just kind of sitting out there twisting in the wind while, you know, these, these government people just did whatever they wanted. You mentioned, I think the first day uh, that the lawsuit was filed, there was $15 billion that left, left the market cap of XRP. That was day one. And uh, so anyway, by, by the time we got to, um, to the summer, um, I, 
I'm really, and I still, I remain to this day convinced that maybe all three branches of the federal government are in some form of capture, um, potentially by a, by a foreign government, foreign entity. Um, we've, we've got the problems with the 2020 election that have never been adequately addressed. We've got, um, you know, the whole COVID vaccine thing that, that, that rolled through globally. Um, and so it, it's how do you deal with a corporation that's effectively a, a, a foreign corporation? Are you, are you trying to jump in here, Jennifer? I was just going to add, it's it's the same in the UK. I mean, we're seeing a complete takeover there as well. So, I mean, it's not just the US. This is happening everywhere, you know, where this infiltration of a foreign entity. Right. And we've learned a lot since, since this idea kind of came up and we worked on it. Um, we, we've learned a lot more about, you know, the history of our banking system, the history of the Fed, uh, you know, the, the, the debt slavery system, all that kind of stuff that we really weren't that familiar with at this time, back in the, the summer of uh, 2021. Um, but, you know, I, I, was, I was very concerned and I remain extremely concerned that um, we're not really dealing with a government. We're certainly not dealing with a government of the people. We're dealing with a corporation that's directed by foreign powers. And how do you, how do you, how do you come to a resolution with a foreign corporation? Well, you got to do a business deal. You got to kind of get into the the world of, you know, admiralty law and 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 propose you know UCC type that's uniform commercial code type 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 things to them. So, so the thesis was really this at that time. It's like okay, they want this stuff so bad. You know, they want to kill it so bad, or they want to use it so bad that they are willing to basically file a lawsuit, destroy the wealth of millions of people, potentially destroy the institution um, and, and, and their own reputations, right? Uh, just to basically get this access. And if they, if they want it that bad, well, hell, let's give it to them. You know, let's figure out a way to do it, but we got to do it at fair market value. And, and so when you, when you start to look at it from that perspective, that they are using every agency of the government and maybe multiple Western governments to try to effectively depress the market so long that we'll end up just burping it up because we have to pay bills and do, do the things that you know, we, we have to do, um, that they'll end up just taking it over time. And in the United States, um, we, we actually have a, a constitutional amendment. It's part of the Bill of Rights. It's the Fifth Amendment. There's a takings clause that says uh, if the government, the government is permitted to use its power of eminent domain or, you know, basically take property from people, uh, but they have to pay just compensation. It's written right there in the Constitution. It's been evaluated by the Supreme Court. And uh, so so really... The, the, the terms, which became known as the buyback, we, we did not brand that. You know, that's like we, as we started this process, and I can get into this a little more later, but as we started this process, we just kind of put the terms out there and kind of the market and the Twitter community and others basically started to label it the buyback and it's stuck. And, you know, that's, that's kind of what it's become. Um, 
But um, yeah, at the time we were just trying to basically propose a transaction at arm's length with the people who really seem to want it very bad uh, for the you know ultimate intended use case, which is to serve as the layer one protocol to move all the money once we move into the blockchain you know uh, financial system. Well, that's, I mean, that's, so that's how it started. Um, you know, initially, um, you know, kind of came up with the idea uh, and I was actually headed to a, a, we've got a really great baseball team here in, here in Houston called the Houston Astros. They're uh, currently the world champions and they were really good in 2021 as well. Uh, so went, went to an Astros game uh, on a Saturday when I was kind of kicking this around, I was talking to one of my partners about it. I said, you know, what we ought to do is, Propose a propose a deal to the Fed because that's who's probably pulling the strings here, and um, and we we're like, okay, it's kind of interesting, probably unprecedented. Don't don't think that's ever occurred before, which is kind of interesting. Um, but we, uh, you know, went to the game. You know, the next day I got up and I was really like, what are you thinking? <laughs> it's like this is ridiculous, and uh, you know, knew that it'd be a, a huge kind of reputational. Um, uh, hit for me personally. Uh, it was certainly um, far more aggressive than any other business transaction I had engaged in. Uh, and kind of on, on the Sunday, it was like, I am, there is no way I'm going to do that. And then came into the office on Monday, and um, I guess there was just, you know, the little voice inside was saying, there's really no problem with just kind of roughing it out kind of for yourself, just to kind of see what they look like. And so, uh, you know, did, I, I pulled some some former kind of public M&A uh, precedent term sheets that I had from doing, you know, big public company uh, M&A deals and kind of based the structure of the transaction on a public to public merger type of a deal, you know, when, where you've got two public companies, both of them have like registered security, you actually have stock. And, you know, those those are transferred through a transfer agent. Uh, a lot of times those transfer agents already have a lot of the shares in book entry um, on, on on their books. And that's that's one of the ways we, we implement these really big public to public deals. So that's kind of the structure where the structure started that has morphed into this uh, in the in the draft that, you know, got leaked. Uh, there's there's this NFT concept which I can talk about here in a second, but did that um, it, it it was clear to us very quickly that it didn't really matter what me or the guys or Valho Capital um, you know thought about this stuff that we needed to, to have the benefit of other professionals who gave us some input um, and 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 could stand in the shoes of a reasonably prudent XRP token holder. Uh, we knew the price needed to be, you know, pretty high, um, uh, but it, it was more than that. It was looking at a, a lot of the, the, the terms and stuff. And most of the terms that are in the draft that went around, um, you know, here a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago now maybe, um, are, are from that 2021 draft. There's, there's a few new bells and whistles in this version, like the uh, liquidated damages for uh, token holders who've had to sell during this time that the lawsuit's been going on, we are we are among those. It's, it's the issue you 
mentioned at the top of the um, the, the the podcast here, Jennifer, about um, you know we've had to liquidate this stuff at values that we believe are much much lower than what you know the current market value should be, but for the lawsuit. Um, and uh, so you know we did that. We we initially sent the uh, we initially sent the initial terms in privately. We did not make them public on September thirteenth of twenty twenty one. Um, we sent them to uh, the Board of Governors of the Fed, and we sent them to all 12 district banks, and we CC'd um, uh, Janet Yellen, Secretary Yellen, uh, at the Treasury, and we, we didn't hear anything back. Um, so kind of a month went by. We were continuing to talk with members of that committee. There were about, there was about 20 or 22 people, I think, on that committee. Um, you know, all, all great people. Um, and we're continuing to talk about it. We had wanted to do it more public and really kind of the concept of like bringing it into the light and negotiating this whole thing out in front of everybody, which we knew would drive the other side absolutely nuts. But really that's kind of what needs to happen uh, is, is the, all these backroom deals that are getting cut, you know, think about the back, back rooms, cigar smoking, all that kind of stuff. And these, you know, handshakes are happening and, and deals are getting cut and they're just not letting us in on it. And then they basically use market forces and regulatory agencies to, um, to basically kind of corral us into certain positions. Uh, we didn't want that to happen. We wanted it to be all out in the open. Um, even we, we're, we're we're not really trying to get the maximum price necessarily, it's, but it needs to be reasonable based on what their intended use is going to be for this asset and for the XRPL. Uh, so we ended up, we, we, we had some information, we, we were getting some intelligence, which is still confidential to this day, that there were off ledger deals that were getting struck, whether through option contracts or different types of things that were, were being set at values that were um, um, much higher, <laughs> significantly higher. Um, and so we ended up raising the price. I think the, on September 13th, the price we were going with was uh, $25,000. We ended up raising it when we sent the next one, uh, which was on October 29th of 2021. We raised it to thirty-seven five. And um, and we we requested that they uh, engage with us within uh, by November the fifth. And when they didn't, and and basically said, you know, we're trying to do this privately, <laughs> you know, and if we don't hear from you, well, we'll take another approach. And so, you know, I don't even think it was like on November the fifth, but in the handful of days after November the fifth, we ended up publishing the initial. Uh, term sheet onto Twitter and um, that stirred up a bunch of people. That's when the buyback kind of started to become known. Um, and we had several people who weren't even on the committee who were just, you know, uh, XRP uh, holders who, you know, were, were basically checking our work. They started calling uh, the district banks, the district, you know, Federal Reserve banks, and trying to see if they had it, if they were going to respond, and they they did end up confirming that uh, it had been received. Um, 
which we kind of have like the FedEx stuff that it had been received. But, you know, they said it had been received and we had one person actually say that they'd be happy to talk with Val Hill Capital about it. And so, uh, and, and provided a contact uh, name and phone number, which I'm not gonna reveal. But uh, so we, we tried to call on that person and our calls went unrequested. We also, uh, we also sent the terms uh, around to some, uh, some other, you know, people. Um, we, we, we sent the terms to JP Morgan and had numerous kind of conversations with, uh, with, with some JP Morgan bankers. I would later learn that it actually uh, it it went all the way to the very top of, of JP Morgan three times, three different times, because there were certain people who kind of liked the idea and were pushing it. And but I guess it would get to the top and um, it was it was basically not not progressed upon or not acted upon uh, at that level. And time kind of went on, um, you know, again. We didn't really know, well, say we knew because the diligence we had done kind of that this, all this corruption was going to start coming out, uh, but it wasn't out yet. Uh, so we didn't have like the whole year of the SEC playing, you know, hide the football with, um, with uh, the, the Hinman emails, uh, which is absolutely appalling uh, from, from my perspective, because there's been, I think, six orders for them to turn over the, the, the emails and the memos. Um, the, the first thing that ended up coming out was, I think, in May of 2022, uh, the Empower Oversight, which is not related to XRP or anything. They're, they're a government watchdog type, um, uh, I think, nonprofit that uh, had been sending in FOIA requests to the SEC to get uh, Bill Hinman's emails around the speech and the calendar. And they finally in May, after again, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of roadblocks being put up by the SEC. Everybody's got to keep in mind, this is a public, this is a public regulatory institution, okay? Transparency should be everything. And for some reason, in the past three years, they don't they don't give guidance. They don't talk. They don't, don't rule make anymore. They just go onto television, say the rules are extremely clear, and then sue projects. That's kind of all they've done. It's it's absolutely horrendous. It's regulatory. It's a regulation by enforcement. It's very poor regulatory process. Um, and it's weird, you know, to, to the SEC used to be really good to work with, like really good. Um, you know, you, you would you'd be taking a company public or or, you know, filing a registration statement to register some shares or something in connection with an M&A transaction. They had tip top lawyers and accountants and they would provide you with really good comments. And, and the whole goal was to get more disclosure to get more information to potential investors so that they could make an, a reasonable investment decision. And, you know, it, you could debate about whether the process of doing that had kind of been diluted somewhat because the, the you know, the, the corporate filings that are made under the Exchange Act regime are so overwhelming 
um, you know, it's so voluminous and uh, it, it, I think it's very, very difficult for your average, you know, retail investor to sort through all the disclosures and the risk factors and all this stuff. But that, that being said, up until, you know, we really got into this digital asset paradigm shift, the SEC was fantastic to work for and work with rather and, and had a really great reputation. It never, you know, I, I never really saw them. I mean, they had the whole, um, you know, the Madoff thing where they had kind of missed it and they missed some stuff. But, you know, you're, you're dealing with a lot of people, you're a lot of companies that are filing in. You can't be auditing every single company. And, you know, as we've learned from certain projects in the digital asset space, people are given the opportunity to perpetuate a fraud. Uh, people will get really creative and, uh, and they will do that, right? So, um, you know, it's 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 been unfortunate uh, that this has all kind of happened in the context of this, you know, the political conflicts that we're having uh, globally now uh, against kind of a a global elite type class uh, versus you know kind of normal people, um, and you know, it's 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 all kind of part of it. Um, but anyway, uh, as that stuff started to come out in May, uh, the Hinman emails came out, they were substantially redacted. I mean, m almost completely redacted, but, um, and they were all out of order. Uh, but one of the things that, that uh, we were able to do working with our attorneys is we created a chronology. Uh, so we just put all the emails in chronological order. And uh, once you had that, there was a very clear story that had been told around, you know, kind of what happened, how the, how the speech draft got prepared, who prepared it, how they kind of put it into a working group that provided some initial comments. Then they went more broadly. You had many, many, many lawyers uh, review that speech. And having, a, you know, practiced for, for, you know, very, very large, well-established law firms for my entire professional career, I know better than most that I've never written anything that I didn't send out for peer review amongst my colleagues that didn't come back completely blood red with a bunch of comments, right? Um, I mean, lawyers can't help themselves. You, you, you almost, it, it's almost like uh, one of my current colleagues, uh, I, I made the comment that, uh, you know, I, I'll have some comments, but I can't get them to you right now. And she said, I, I wouldn't have thought you read it if you didn't have comments. And that's, that's basically like the unwritten rule in, in lawyering, right? You got you got to you got to provide your, your your time by the word, so to speak. So, um, as you think about what the the subject matter of the Hinman speech was, and it was a it was a really substantial regulatory announcement. <clears throat> um, even after the, Hinman made the speech, he kind of went and roadshowed what he had just said, you know, this new decentralization component of, of the Howey test, right? That if a project is substantially or significantly enough decentralized, that um, there would be no kind of issuer that you could kind of directly go at with the securities laws and say, you have to register, you have to, you know, provide these ongoing 
you know, disclosures under the Exchange Act and all this stuff. You got to require, you know, comply with all these securities laws. Um, that, uh, that, that really is kind of, it's the old, uh, you know, round peg, square hole type type thing. But that's what he did. And so these are very, very, very smart lawyers that were at the SEC at the time from the very best capital markets law firms in the world that were, you know, part of this. I mean, Bill Hemman from Simpson Thatcher is, is, I think, you know, in 2021, they were the fifth most profitable law firm in the world. Uh, Sullivan Cromwell has been number two for the past two years. Uh, Sullivan Cromwell is obviously continuing on with, with the FTX case where they, they seem to be on every side of, of that process. And it's, um, anyway, the point is that there's no way all these lawyers looked at that speech, and if it would have had what he said, they wouldn't have raised a red flag about it. Uh, they, they would have appreciated the significance of the moment that, you know, a, a very high-ranking SEC official was going to walk on stage and announce to the market that uh, Bitcoin was not going to be subject to the securities laws and Ethereum was not going to be subject to the securities laws. So there would have been a ton of discussion about XRP and maybe even some other projects. And, you know, Bill, how is this not different or that type of thing? It could have even been, of course, we, we are left to speculate. So everybody, please understand that this, this whole, we, we don't know what happened inside the SEC. So we're left to try to read the tea leaves and figure out what happened. It could have been that they were about to sue Ethereum um, that because Ethereum had had a bona fide ICO with a contract. Uh, so there was an investment contract. In fact, in Hinman's own speech, when he goes to talk about Ethereum, he says, putting aside the fundraising that accompanied the creation of Ethereum, we was like, so it's basically like, okay, putting aside the illegal securities offering, we now think they're decentralized is basically what he said. So there's just no way that all these accomplished lawyers, very, very smart people would not have had a lot of concerns unless it either wasn't in there, that the Ethereum piece wasn't in there, and this was just a statement about Bitcoin, or it could have been maybe XRP was also in there, that there was three of them. He's he going to say Bitcoin is decentralized. Most of, the, most of the speech is on the topic of decentralization and, and Bitcoin, and then he just kind of rips Ethereum in the middle of it. Um, and, and that um, uh, it may have been that he was going to say, Ethereum and XRP are the, are the same, and he just left off XRP. Uh, so anyway, those emails came out. They were highly redacted. Uh, thank you to Empower Oversight for, for getting access to that. Uh, you know, I think Dr. Rosalind Layton, who's just yesterday filed a motion to intervene to get uh, access to these Hinman documents, um, has been doing a wonderful job covering uh, covering the the story and the progress. Uh, you've had the uh, you've had uh, uh, Judge Netburn, the, the magistrate judge in the case, that's you know effectively managing the case during the discovery period before it kind of turned over to, to Judge Torres, 
is the actual federal district court judge that'll that'll make the ruling on the summary judgment motions. And you know they've been coordinating the whole time. Um, very very good judges, very accomplished judges, and and I do feel um, you know whereas back in 2021 I was a little more nervous about you know the the judicial branch being being captured. And we've seen some bad decisions unrelated to this. We've seen some bad decisions, you know, more politically charged uh, come out of the, the federal the federal bench here in the past, call it three years. Uh, but there's been starting to be some some correct ones, too. You know, uh, we've got the EPA case out of the Supreme Court uh, that basically stands for the proposition that if Congress has not specifically set forth in statute uh, what the powers of the regulatory agency are. They can't kind of read their own powers in into the statute. It has to be kind of expressly set forth. And so they pulled back the EPA. Uh, that type of thing is at play here with, with the SEC, with their regulation by enforcement and trying to shoehorn digital assets, which really are completely different. Um, they're trying to shoehorn that into the securities laws. Um, it's 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 not really holding together. Uh, I think it's really coming down to now you've got you've got Ripple's attorneys who've argued very very well uh, that if no contract, no investment contract, and they've gone back to the legislative history around the Securities Act and defining what it, what an investment contract would have meant at the time. And it they would have gone, they would have been looking at, this is Congress would have been looking at um, uh, the state uh, um, uh, common law around investment contract, because that's where it was really commonly used under what we call blue sky laws, which is kind of the, the state's version of securities laws. So it's it's kind of coming down to that, you know, if uh, if no contract, no investment contract, and for a contract to be there, you have to have what they call post-sale obligations. So you have to be, um, you know, you, you got to have some obligation with respect to the investor that you've apparently sold the security to to be sharing sharing some profits with them or something. That's the that's the third prong that's coming up. So Ripple's asserted that very well in their motion for summary judgment. Uh, they've um, uh, the, uh, Jones Day recently, there, there's a case involving, I think it's a couple of former form, uh, Coinbase employees, uh, I think it's called Wahi, W-A-H-I, I think, uh, SECV Wahi, but it applies to two or three different defendants. And Jones Day, which is a, um, it's one of, one of my former alma mater law firms where I spent really the majority of my career, wonderful, wonderful law firm. Uh, and, and a big, big law firm, global law firm um, has come out representing the defendant, basically uh, uh, asserting that same um, analysis that, you know, no contract, no investment contract, no post-close, no post-ongoing uh, obligation, post-sale obligations, and no, uh, no sharing of profits. That may be what becomes the ripple test at the end of this. You know, we've seen uh, Ripple's general counsels, Bert Alderati, refer to the ripple test um, and, and, you know, so long how he test, here comes ripple test. And maybe that's kind of where this is going. Um, but, you know, it's just sad for me. The whole thing is just really sad because uh, 
number one, you've got all the damages to, to holders and, and the, the stifling of innovation. Um, you know, developers and, and, and investors, capital cannot come into the, the project really to, to develop new use cases of which I anticipate there's going to be thousands of use cases for XRP in the XRPL, but, you know, capital can't be deployed from, you know, institutional type investors with this, uh, this regulatory cloud hanging over the project. And, you know, obviously it happened, as you mentioned at the top, uh, Jennifer, it happened right as uh, the 2021 bull run was commencing. It really started, you know, in November, uh, XRP started to really bolt out and uh, it, it kind of settled a bit, and it was it was clear to us that you know this is gonna this is probably gonna you know be a big kind of 2017 type event, 2017 and 2018 type event, and then the lawsuit happened. Um, so it's sad. It, it what what should have been done? I can think of a dozen other ways that the SEC could have done this if they really cared about um, kind of the ordinary investor, if, if they really followed their mission statement on their website, and they've got things like accountability to the public, transparency, honesty, these types of things are riddled through their, their mission. And, and uh, if they really followed that and acted in this ethical manner and transparent manner, there was a, there was ways to to put committees together and work through the regulatory framework. Uh, the conclusion that that I've come to is that there's just no desire to do it, probably because Congress is being lobbied by the legacy banking system, who is petrified that this this is going to uh, take over, and it will, you know, uh, it, it will. Doesn't matter how long they delay it. Ultimately, this is going to be the answer. And uh, yeah, so that's that's what it is. So I've talked a long time. Hopefully, you guys can start yes. asking me. <laughs> Ask you about um, you know selling back. So one of the questions everyone was worried about was, you know, how why would I sell it back? And essentially, you're saying this is an option, not the only one of way to use the XRP to sell back for damages or losses during this time so that you are paid fair market value for the coin you you hold, correct? Yep. That, that, is, that is mostly correct. The, the other piece of this is that um, it goes into how fair market value is established. So if you, if you go, you know, any, modern definition of fair market value is kind of consists of three different prongs, only one of which is the price, okay? But it's gotta be a price that's established between a willing buyer and a willing seller having no um, compulsion to sell. So, you know, for example, if you've got a lawsuit <laughs> over your head, you might be feeling compelled to sell. So that's the second prong. The third prong is having knowledge of all the relevant facts. And to me, that's the big one, because um, if it is intended to serve as, say, the world reserve currency or, um, or a substantial bridge currency in, in connection with maybe uh, what, what, 
what looks like we're kind of doing globally to us after thousands and thousands of hours of research is uh, we're kind of breaking into currency blocks. You, you've got, you know, Russia and China have already been working on a gold-backed currency to trade in. China and Saudi Arabia have started to um, uh, talk about trading in, in oil and other, some currency other than dollars. You have a lot of countries that are starting to break away from the West and kind of the, the NATO alliance and going, going to BRICS. It seems like the BRICS block, if you will, is, is already in the process of adopting uh, some type of an asset-backed currency standard. And what I mean by that, that's, that's another way to say a gold standard, but commodities-backed, asset-backed, where, you know, there is, there is real value behind the currency, standing behind the currency. The currency is exchangeable for that real asset, and it's not just fiat, which I hope most of your most of your audience appreciates what what fiat is, but you know that's just, fiat just kind of means by order. It has no uh, it has no real value. There's no intrinsic value to a dollar. It's just a piece of paper. So, um, you know that that we believe uh, is going to continue to happen. You could see maybe maybe there ends up to be three or five of these kind of currency blocks that get established, and then you know XRP is just a bridge currency between those blocks. Um, may, maybe every country has their own asset-backed currency, and XRP is a bridge between everything, uh, just currency-wise. But I think we all know we've 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 learned enough about the XRPL and, and tokenization of assets and everything to this point that we know there's going to be a bunch of assets once this is all behind us. It's going to be a bunch of assets tokenized and and transmitted on the uh, the XRPL. Um, so, so how to establish fair market value if that is the in, ultimate intended use case? Um, and, and so part of that is they, they would have to tell us that, that, no, that, that's, that's what we're going to do. That's the plan. We've been working on it for a decade and well, you caught us. <laughs> uh, and, and they would have to disclose to us that that's the plan. And then we can talk about some discounted price to uh, all the money valuation or um, or whatever whatever it needs to be to establish equilibrium uh, to be able to balance the trade of, of all assets and all currencies across the ledger. But that's that's as big as the the damages issue. The the, the damages issue, you know, that, that that really apply to everybody, right? There's a lot of people who are going to use XRP in the future, uh, institutions, banks, um, that that aren't using it right now, um, and they need a price established that's reasonably high. And the reason for that, it's very simple. It's that the the ledger is more efficient in moving value, which is its intended purpose. The higher the price of XRP, you know, David Schwartz has commented on this before. You know, he's used the example of if it's a million, if you're selling a house, it's a million million dollars, and you. You'd either have to use a whole bunch of coins if it was at a dollar, you'd have to use a million coins, or you could use one coin if it's a million dollars. So the, the ledger just becomes more efficient. That's a huge benefit, and, and people don't think about this. That's a huge benefit to, to, the, to the banks and, and financial institutions that, uh, that move 
significant significant amounts of value. You know, if if you don't have to go and get, you know, 30 million XRP to basically make this particular transaction that might be material or series of payments, uh, and you could use 30, uh, that's just a more efficient thing. Less competition in the market, the price is stable, the network's more stable. So that that's a piece of it. Also, there's an assumption that most of the XRP that's out in the market is not held by retail. It's held by um, it's held by institutions already, and they're holding it on their balance sheet at these very low prices. Some of them are using it. We we know there's banks in Australia that are using it. In fact, we know that they're using it at a different price. <laughs> uh, but because I've said it on video, uh, but um, there's um, if you if, say you've got an allotment of I don't know, a million XRP, right? And you're Bank of Canada, right? Well, right now you can't really move a lot of value uh, with with the million XRP. Number one, uh, you've got liabilities on your balance sheet that are far and away in excess of that, right? So you get in this whole how to work the standard accounting equation, which is a law. Uh, how do you work that in a way where you can effectively re-equitize your balance sheet? What I mean by that, just for those that, that aren't accountants, uh, so you know, there's a, there's a law that says assets minus liabilities equal your equity. And the world we're living in today, um, our, our assets, compared to our liabilities, our liabilities are stratospheric, okay? It's so, the, the debt that is in the system is so stratospheric, we're in a negative equity situation in the legacy banking system. The, the entire system's effectively bankrupt, right? But for the fact we can keep pumping fiat dollars into the system and payments can be getting made, but the longer that goes, it's kind of like it starts to freeze. You know, it just slowly grinds to a stop because at some point the available uh, uh, cash, the available fiat that's in the system is so astronomical that the value due to inflation and what you're able to use it for is, is, is worthless, right? So it takes, it's like moving, it's like moving a string. Uh, so how do you write up the asset? That's so. What needs to happen, and this kind of ties into a lot of the stuff that I think you know you're you've been discussing and your community has been discussing, Jennifer, over the past couple of years, is this concept of a global currency reset. Um, you know, the World Economic Forum's got their version of it. It's like the Great Reset. You want nothing and be happy version. I don't think any of us particularly like that very much. Um, and then there's kind of a you know, go back to the gold standard version of that, which I think was was kind of the type of thing that was being discussed among the Trump administration, you know, before they left office. You know, they were trying to get Judy Shelton onto the uh, onto the Fed board. I think she went up twice for confirmation and was rejected both times, which is a travesty. But, you know, uh, Judy Shelton's a, she's a gold buck. She wants to return to the gold standard. She wants a uniform level playing field across all currency standards, and you gotta have asset-backed currency to be able to do that, have a level playing field. Um, so in the, the other option is to, um, is to write up the assets such that um, 
such that you you take care of the liabilities. You basically your assets come up enough to where they're at least equal and you're back to, to positive equity. That's effectively what a reset is, a, a debt reset every time it's ever happened in history before. And it's happened maybe a thousand times in history before. Ray Dalio has a great book, um, great book on this that he came out with, I think last year. It's really, really good. Um, so the, the cool thing about these digital assets, like in, in the past, Every time we've had a, a global currency reset before, it's always been reset to gold every time because gold's been kind of God's money for, for, you know, for the history of humanity. Uh, banking systems started out of gold and storing gold and providing receipts for gold that was in storage and people started trading the receipts and that's how currency kind of came about. Um, so now, you know, gold is, is important. Central banks have been hoarding gold for, for certainly the past three years. Uh, uh, people are acquiring a lot of gold. I think I think you, I heard you say earlier that that you've got the ability to buy precious metals through through your your group, right? So that's something people are investing in a lot uh, is precious metals. I think to bring everyone along. In 2023, you, you have to look at like what's important to, to places like the Middle East that maybe in in prior times were kind of left out and it was about getting access to the oil. So you can see oil and natural gas, um, maybe, you know, the types of minerals that are used in, you know, uh, cell phone, electronic equipment like cobalt and silver, lithium, you know, these types of things start to become this basket of com commodities to go back to a um, an asset-backed standard that we'll talk about is the gold standard is just a euphemism to, to cover those assets. But uh, come to some global agreement. Now, the, the issue is that, you know, everybody's got a different thing. Even if you look at gold, uh, people have different levels of gold holdings. So if you just take gold and write that up to $100,000, uh, ounce, let's say. I'm not saying it's going to happen, and nothing that I'm saying on here is financial advice. But this could be something you could see. If they write it up to $100,000, that re-equitizes all the debt. But the problem is the people who don't have gold are are kind of left out in the cold. They 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 ended up with the short end of the deal there. Um, but you've got this new asset class, right? This this digital asset class that. Um, Really, we haven't put a fair market value on it yet. And you you could write that up and you'd, you'd end up making, you know, certain people, you know, quite wealthy. Uh, but, you know, percentage wise, it's not that much. It's kind of more of a blip. I don't know if you've seen these infographics about how many people like hold an XRP, you know, compared to the world population, but it is, it is a dot. Um, a dot on a big graph. So um, that that's you know that that's our theory you know of what you could do. It, it's about writing up the assets to re-equitize the the global balance sheet. Uh, use it in connection with a with a global reset of currency uh, back to an asset backed standard, and that needs to be done in an arm's length transaction. Um, and there you go. We've provided a, a mechanism for it. And again, like you said, it's it's one way of probably 50 ways that this could get resolved. It's 
it doesn't require bloodshed. It doesn't require uh, genocide. It doesn't require pandemics. Uh, it's just kind of reasonable people getting in the room and, uh, and, and, and agreeing and, you know, the stroke of the pen. Well, thank you for, for all of that. And I, I guess I wanted to ask, you know, if people are selling back, are they selling back to an SDR? And, you know, is that what you're. So, so yeah, let, let's talk about that for a sec. Cause the, the, sure. you know, everything in this term sheet is like, Mary, it's just a term sheet, right? Like if this were to actually happen, and by the way, I think the odds of this happening, I, I refer to it as a triple Lindy, which is from a, uh, Rodney Dangerfield's uh, uh, back to school movie, I think in the late eighties, early nineties, he had this dive, this like spectacular thing that he would like jump off one diving board, do a flip to another one. And this happened like three times and he makes like the perfect dive. They call it the triple Lindy. It's like impossible to do. So I refer to this as the triple Lindy. It's, it's super hard. It almost requires the global currency reset to be occurring contemporaneously with this happening. Um, but is, is what, as, as for what the consideration should be, you know, XRP right now, to our knowledge, is the most liquid asset that's ever been created in the history of the world. You know, and what I mean by that is you can take a, a you can take an XRP token and turn it into anything else of value. Uh, and that's a, just a phenomenal conceptual thing. Uh, and, and, and when you consider the liquidity of that thing, that's why I think Ripple very correctly is pursuing, you know, on-demand liquidity and, and all these different liquidity type options. It's referred to as a liquidity token. Uh, um, uh, and I think that's, that's a correct reference. But what is, so what's like the most similar thing to that? Well, the most similar thing would kind of be like an international money. We want to be asset backed, and the only thing that's like that is a is a special drawing right issued by the IMF, uh, and they already have the ability to do electronic versions, tokenized versions, so ESDRs. Uh, the the term sheet requires that it would be asset backed. Part of those substantial expenses that would be paid in implementing a transaction like this. Uh, would be paying lawyers and bankers and accountants to verify that, in fact, the assets are there standing behind these ESDRs. I mean, people are going to have to be flying around the world and you know, doing audits of, of this stuff, um, or will have to be verified, you know, um, and certified to by the, the various governments and things like that. Um, so, yeah, that, that was the concept. That's the concept that's in here as far as the cash component of it. There's four elements of consideration. One of them is kind of the cash component. And the way I, the way I kind of imagine it being would be that, you know, if you, if you think about one of the major institutions, um, you know, it seems like everybody's kind of liking, liking thinking about PolySign potentially serving as the, the primary custodian of an asset like this that, that people basically have claims on, but may not be best to be held by individuals. So imagine, you know, Jennifer, you, you end up being a participant in this transaction and 
I don't know, your, your, your XRP holdings, you, you got like $50 billion in ESDR value. Um, you know, th there would be a, a, a necessity for you to have, you know, a personal trust or something that basically has a bank account, right? The, and, or, or an account with someone like a PolySign and your assets are stored there. And when you need to like, you know, you, you just, you, you had the daughter, right? Um, or you had the son. So your son who's just been born, you know, now, now he's 16 and it's time to drive. And you're like, you're uber wealthy. And you're like, I'm going to get him a BMW. And, uh, you know, so it's, $60,000, $65,000 or something like that. And, and so you're, you know, you just call up PolySign and you say, you know, I'm Jennifer and, you know, my accounts, blah, blah, blah. I need to pull down $65,000 or 65,000 pounds if you're over in the UK, maybe. Um, and they could give you whatever. They would just convert your, that amount of your ESDR and, and uh, you know, basically make a balance sheet entry that you now have this many pounds to go buy the, the vehicle. You you go buy your son the, the vehicle and that's how it would work. You would start kind of interfacing with the banking system more like wealthy people have engaged with it, you know, since the beginning of time. So that's the ESDR concept and kind of how I would see it working post-closing. But, but the XRP, for the people who were to participate in this, you would be selling your XRP. You would no longer have your XRP. They're going to use the XRP. It's very interesting. I mean, I mean, there's so many, so many questions I want to ask, and I'm conscious of time, and I know that there's probably others that want to ask you questions. Um, I mean, I really see this as, <clears throat> you know, that transition of that old guard into this kind of new financial system that absolutely is asset-backed. And yeah. on this channel, we're like very pro metals as we are certain digital assets, <laughs> XRP. And um, this has been a very big concern for everyone. You know, this notion of CBDCs and these, you know, parameters written within programmable money controlling the banks. And, you know, I have said uh, on numerous occasions on our calls with other guests, et cetera, that, you know, XRP, the XRPL, it, it can't be controlled. This is innovation. The technology works without the internet. It, you know, it works without this, this, these parameters are a bit of code. So you would either write a bit of code to kind of exit the parameters or a web application that would function without so, you know, but would still transact um, with XRP. Uh, so whether you choose to participate in a buyback or, you know, want to, you know, render your XRPL or your XRP out uh, to either borrow against or collateral, you know, like these are the, the ways I see the financial system shifting and changing, uh, you know, as we kind of enter this new system. What are your thoughts there? Oh, well, I agree. I agree. Um, and I, I think it's, it's just not clear. Are we, are we going to kind of go through this gradually and kind of more of a linear growth pattern? Uh, or is there some event that's going to basically bring it all to a head uh, and, and make us have to, to flip over? The most important thing, I think, is that everyone 
should take a seat at the table. Um, th this we, we can't really can't really live in a, in a, in a world anymore where we kind of just rely on banks to take care of us or the government or insurance companies. I, I think we have to start. Um, and I think this is happening certainly for people that, that have been, you know, uh, uh, investing in digital assets and, and, you know, holding them like you're, you're speaking of, there is this new kind of responsibility. I mean, when you, when you're holding digital assets on a, on a ledger nano wallet, uh, I mean, you know, where your wallet is, you know, where your passphrases are, you, you, there is this kind of, you know, careful custody of your assets going on. Um, and I think that's a good thing. And I think that that kind of philosophy or almost spiritual disposition needs to continue to grow uh, such that, you know, we're just not going to take whatever, you know, the, the, the government says or the banking system says. Um, at the end of the day, if we unite around good ideas, they'll have to listen to us. And, and that's really the way it, it should be. It's the way, certainly in, in, in my country, you know, our founding fathers tried to set forth a, a governmental structure that worked that way. And, um, you know, and I think we, we, we've got uh, to start kind of standing up for ourselves again. And, and and living that type from from that leadership type, you know, position. So I do think we do, are having a changing of the old guard. Maybe it's just as simple as the boomer class is, is they're certainly deep. They're in kind of the middle of their retirement phase. Um, you know, they'll, they'll be passing, passing away. Um, there will be a transition of wealth down to, um, you know, down through like our generation, Jennifer, I think we're, we're both Xers. And um, then you've got, uh, you got the millennials, right? And, and really even behind the millennials, you got Gen Z, which is kind of combining with the millennials to be, I think the two of those groups together are bigger than even the baby boom uh, 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 group was. And they think about things differently. They're, they're, um, they, you know, we're, we're all very, uh, the, the Gen X group is very, um, should I say this? We were trained by boomers and, and a lot of the ways we think about the world and our construct of how it works was very influenced. That's the world. It was very influenced by, you know, things that the boomers thought was appropriate and, and thought was, you know, the right way to do things. And they had the numbers to structure society uh, in such a way that it, it, it worked out for them. You know, as they moved through time, you know, the reason you had a hippie movement in the 60s that turned into disco in the 70s, that turned into barbarians at the gate at the 80s, when they're all, you know, getting, getting becoming professionals and stuff is, is really just watching the boomers cross through time and, and watching their lives. And now they're, you know, they're at the, um, they're at, you know, that, that twilight, the sunset period. And, um, and, and it's this transition that's so messy, you know, that, that I, I believe is, it accounts for 95% of the bullshit that we see going on in the world. 
um, is is basically you know the the old guard moving on, uh, as you put it before. So I do think we've got to have really pure-hearted, uh, honest. You know, if we're going to reset everything, I, I, I for one, you know, I, I I don't want you know greed to be the major you know driver of the way people deal with uh, with money and deal with other people. Uh, I, I I you know there's a uh, there's a line uh, from from Rush. I'm a, I'm a huge Rush. Uh, fan, and uh, the, the the song "Close to the Heart" uh, starts out. You know, the men who hold high places must be the ones to start to mold a new reality closer to the heart, and that's that's what I think is going on. Uh, you know, you, you, a lot of the leaders in, in your community, you being one of them, um, are really you, you're 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 acting. You're you're walking the walk. You know, you're you're, you're leading from the heart. You're honest. You, you, you are looking to stamp out fraud and scams at every turn. Um, I'm the same. Uh, Val Hill Capital is founded on those principles. Uh, the first thing we did here was, was have the office, you know, blessed. And, um, and I think, you know, we're, we're taking the baton now and we're not going to have it very long uh, because the, the millennials are, you know, they're coming into the professional workplace. In fact, they're, they're already there. Uh, they're already in their 30s, you know, um, and, and you know, here soon, probably this period of time, this transitionary period of time, what I call passing the baton, being the, I see our generation as being the great stewards that we're taking the baton and then we're going to pass it down. Uh, and it's like a 15-year period tops, so 10 to 15-year period where you know, we get to basically stamp our values onto what gets passed down. And it's that, you know, that uh, collision of what everybody's you know, values are that's going on politically and globally now, uh, as, as you got the boomers trying to just hold on to every last thing, um, <laughs> steal every last dime. Uh, and we're saying we, we, we don't we don't want we don't want to live in that world anymore. We want a better world, a more fair world, a level playing field, uh, humanitarian projects, things of that nature, better banks, better banking systems. Uh, let's make banking boring again. Um, so that's kind of the way I see it playing out. Wow, thank you. Um, I wanted to just hand the floor to Vicky. Vicky, did you want to ask your question? Yeah, cheers, Jennifer. Just um, obviously just representing the UK over here, we're, <laughs> we're still, I've, I've never learned so much about US history, banking systems and everything like that than I have for the last three years uh, with Jennifer. Um, I was doing some, uh, you know, deeper research on the SEC and how they're kind of gunning for crypto and, and, and the kind of speed and you know, the acceleration of it. So, the SEC, just for those who might not know, brought their first kind of crypto-based action um, in July 2013. And at the end of last year, 2022, they managed to um, scoop up $2.6 billion uh, in crypto-related penalties, uh, which was 82 litigations, 45 administrative proceedings. Um, the most, and recently we've just seen Kraken 
obviously get hit with a 30 million for, for staking and stuff like that as a fine. Um, and I just, I feel like the SEC are, uh, I don't, they're just really, I don't know, I say lost at the moment or whether this is um, uh, a path they are choosing to take to try and knock out of the market as many kind of crypto players as possible. And I say this because I just uh, tweeted a, a clip of a speech from Gary Gensler from September last year where he literally says twice in the speech, for those who are starting up in this space now, either from traditional finance or as crypto native companies, work with us on compliance from the beginning. It's far less costly to do so from the outset. Uh, then he quotes Joseph Kennedy, no honest business need fear the SEC. Well, as we know, Ripple have been obviously side by side with them trying to bring in clarity to make sure everybody can follow everything. Um, you know, as straight as possible, yet they've still been hit with this lawsuit. Kraken's still been hit. Everybody is just desperate for this clarity. So um, for me, yes, I, do you trust them? Um, and just, I suppose, my main question from that, with the SEC or with the Fed or anything over in the States, is there kind of any examples of com uh, comparative um, buybacks? It doesn't have to be within crypto, like within anything else other than the gold, through, you know, pre-33s as we know uh, on that buyback is there any other kind of benchmark that's helping progress this case just so we can get some more clarity around it being British or other nations outside of the US there's there's quite a lot of noise yeah yeah um, so yes there is uh, so uh, there's a there's a very very um, distinguished gentleman named Reggie Middleton who um, is way, way out on the forefront of uh, in, in inventing and developing use cases uh, for you know, blockchain and digital asset technology. Uh, and he had a project called uh, Veritasium. And um, the SEC brought an enforcement action against Mr. Middleton. And uh, they basically ended up disgorging Kind of like they're seeking to do with Ripple, they disgorged all of the, um, all of his, I guess, earnings uh, f from the project, and set up a fund and offered a buyback for anybody that wanted to, um, to basically turn their uh, Vertasium tokens in. As I understand, uh, the the retail holders and you know various investors and stuff. Um, basically refused to participate kind of in a, um, I think maybe one did, but it, it was uh, the buyback uh, that the, the, the SEC, and remember, so the SEC basically takes all the proceeds and then sets up a fund that the SEC manages and says, okay, you can come like, you know, you can come turn your tokens into us for, for cash. Um, and, and as I understand, kind of a, 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 a statement of unity with, with Mr. Middleton, I think uh, very few people actually took the SEC up, up on their offer. So there is one actually in crypto uh, that, that, that's been done before. I was not really aware of that um, when we started down the uh, uh, proposed terms path. Um, but yeah, then you, you mentioned the, the, the big one, the big one that was on our mind, um, you know, when we were doing the work in 2021, was the the gold confiscation, um, and you know we live in a completely different world than we did in 1933 when that when that occurred. Uh, you know, you, 
you, you, you had to like send, you know, there was very few cars at that time. You had, you, you had to send like uh, stagecoaches, like, you know, Wells Fargo wires went by stagecoach, you know, and, and that's how value moved and, and, and the post office and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, we, we live in a world where you can, if you, if you got, you know, if you got the energy, you can research anything you want pretty much anywhere in the world and dive deep into it and learn, learn a ton, you know, in, a, in an evening. And it just wasn't, the information was not that readily available. We, you wouldn't have even known in 1933 if something like that had occurred before. You couldn't even ask the question, right? It wouldn't have been available to you. But uh, yeah, there's those two precedents for uh, for the buyback. I think the other question you had was kind of what do I think of the SEC? Um, yeah. And um, trust. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm um, I'm I, I'm I'm saddened. By, by their actions, uh, it, it's it's very um, it's traumatic actually that uh, our own government, who has taken oaths to protect us, uh, and and puts all this you know fluffy language on their website what their mission is and everything, so they have a duty to do so, would then turn and basically weaponize the power of the the full force of the U.S. government against retail investors in, in the way that it's occurred. Um, I, I think as they continue this, I think it's very clear to everybody now watching it, unless you are deeply, deeply, deeply asleep, which we still have. I don't know. Probably it'd be good to have a swag from you guys about how, how many, how much of the population globally do you think is still like deep asleep, like blue pill asleep? Like thinks the government's just great. Oh, I dread to think, to be honest. Jennifer, what do you think? We, oh, I still meet daily people who are asleep. Yeah, but think about how many, I mean, rather than think of who's sleeping, think of how many have woken up over the last three years. Right. True. Crypto's still out there. They're still getting their head around the fact that they can't trust government. And the CBDCs right. is their kind of first inkling of anything kind of, you know, where they learn about DLT or, blo you know, anything blockchain kind of. And, and they've been programmed to, to steer clear of crypto by these kind of news. Yeah, yeah. As corrupt as the SEC is, I mean, what we're going through had to happen uh, to expose us. I mean, at some point this had to end. And so okay. let this be it. I mean, there's many theories on how XRP is will be strategically used whether it's to circumvent world war three you know or you know be used uh to basically stop some kind of monumental scare event um you know as this kind of quick solution um i, I mean i anticipate all of this and i agree that the asset backed definitely gold i mean looking back on history we will only assume such that metals um, become an intricate part of the new financial system. And, you know, those that choose to participate in a, you know, hypothetical buyback, I mean, whether you do or do not, this is just something that I thought was a great way of setting, you know, um, setting something out there in writing uh, mm -hmm. that says, wait a minute, we, the XRP holders, aren't going to forget about the damages that were unjustly ensued upon us, uh, you know, from November uh, or December onwards. 
um, because yeah, there were many of us holding and then it gave everybody else a chance to buy in. <laughs> and here we are three years later waiting. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe their intended, you know, uh, ideas behind this is to go all the way up to the Supreme Court, although we'll see how long they can kick the can mm-hmm. on the current financial system. Well, let, let, let me just, uh, you know, leave everybody with this, that, um, first of all, we, we would never, we as Val Hill, Jimmy, anybody involved in this would never do anything that isn't like 100, we didn't believe was 100% secure and protected and in the best interest of a reasonably prudent XRP token holder. So this is never even going to come across your screen or show up in your email or your, your mailbox if it didn't if it didn't get there. That's kind of number one. Number two, if this ever were to happen, I mean, I don't know if people have experience like seeing class action lawsuit settlements and stuff like that or you know, maybe a company you've invested in has gone through a merger with someone or been acquired and you get kind of the full financial disclosure. N- nobody's like going to miss this. If, if this happens, this is going to be very, very broadly communicated. Everybody is going to, you know, they're, they're going to have to, we'll have to come up with some way probably to ping the ledger with the information. Um, uh, you know, just, I, you know, can't even imagine, but there, it's going to be very, very well known, documented thoroughly, all this kind of, with plenty of time to think about what you want to do. Uh, fact, even we, we've made provision in here for basically a fund to be created so that each individual could actually go and get their own legal counsel and have their own legal counsel be paid for in evaluating whether or not they want to participate. So all the stuff that was, you know, going around about, you know, Val Hill wants your XRP and we're going to take your keys. Or what, that is that is hogwash. It's never going to happen, never intended to happen. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of hope it does. I, I hope the buyback isn't the thing that happens. I, I actually hope that, you know, reasonable heads begin to kind of, you know, prevail and take leadership in, in the right places. Um, and, and yeah, maybe maybe that's what you're doing, Jennifer, with, with, your, with your channel and your, and, your, and your following that, you know, that the, the new leadership comes in with their hearts in the right place. And, and we're able to kind of sit down and just work it, work through the stuff and make it work. Well, I believe that we can make it work. And I, you know, openly yeah. embrace this new financial system. And I, you know, snub my nose at these CBDCs because ultimately I believe they will fail if not backfire. And mm-hmm. if you're, if you're b- building real asset back and, you know, again, with the XRP that we don't talk enough about the values in that protocol. I mean, there is this interledger protocol that can settle these, you know, asset backed, you know, uh, payments, in, you know, instantaneously, immediately, and everything's trusted and verified with the use of blockchain. But because we are having to see not only the just, the ex, you know, the expose of corruption within politics, the medical world, the education, you know what I mean? It's, it's a lot. People are like, whoa, yeah. overload. Um, and then, you, you know, I thought it was also really interesting what you said on other interviews is addressing this element of trauma. You know, this XRP community is, is traumatized. I mean, some are really impatient and they've held, you know, for the last year. Uh, or they entered the market, or a few years, you know, since 2020, or even those that have come in in 2012 and 13, 
you know, mm-hmm. like talk about belief, right? And like, you know, there is just because you know when you you know what you hold, you're not dissuaded, you're not looking elsewhere. You just eventually this is what's going to happen uh with this asset. And I think all this, you know, dog and pony show, the charade that we're watching ultimately had to be unraveled layer by layer. And this is the unfortunate uh, way. But I I mean I appreciate what you are doing because you know, just starting the conversation somewhere um, about the damages owed to XRP holders. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, with PolySign, do you think those are going to be accredited investors now? Is that why perhaps they're looking to change the milestones on what is an accredited investor? You mean uh, this assumes like a buyback occurs and now the participating token holders have all become accredited? Sure, yeah. Um, but- it could be, or or it, it could be that, you know, they, they know the market, you know, I guess there's talk that, you know, uh, here in March, we're going to have, you know, a substantial amount of, of financial institutions go live on uh, ISO 20022 protocol or standards, and, and that that could, you know, dramatically increase uh, the use of these digital assets. Uh, it could just be, you know, they know that the people who are holding digital assets generally are going to, um, you know, going to do well um, to the extent that they, they hold. So, All yeah, right. I, I, you know, that, that's just another thing. It, it, it's ridiculous to me that they're proposing that. And I think what Jennifer is referencing for those who aren't following this, the, the, the the current accredited investor standard in um, in the securities laws is like a net worth of a million dollars absent your uh, without taking your home into account. Um, and there, the benefit of that is you can implement certain types of securities transactions as a private placement and not have to uh, comply with the registration requirements to offer and sell securities under Section 5 of the Securities Act. Um, and what talking about is taking that million dollars and moving it up. What, what Gensler has been talking about is taking that million dollars and turn, moving it up to 10 million. So a lot of people who are presently uh, accredited uh, could potentially lose accredited investor status. And how that protects, you know, your ordinary, you know, uh, family of four is beyond me. Um, it, it seems as if they're, uh, they're just creating hurdles for, you know, um, more regular participants to be able to participate in the capital markets. Well, this is precisely what, you know, blockchain can be used to help solve, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're holding assets of significant value, you can bypass a lot of this kind of lending procedure and fluff and just unnecessary use of one's time. Um, you know, to either borrow money, you know, and use your assets as collateral or lend them out and earn an interest. And this is where when you said in another interview, um, I believe with the lovely Molly, (laughs) uh, where you were speaking to college graduates. I mean, this is where young people get excited about blockchain because they see the utility in many ways it can be used to solve problems. So it doesn't have to come. and, And it's not synonymous with the creepy parameter surveillance, you know, surveillance biometric technology. I mean, that is just a few people that want to write a bit of code into that. We, the people, can decide how this new system 
takes place. Um, and this is how, you know, what we, you know, how we get involved and vocalize um, and, and, you know, kind of use our creative uh, strategies to, to drive these solutions in this space. We don't have to just kind of adhere to all these carbon footprint MasterCards, right? Because now Ledger has a debit card and Uphold has a debit card. And, you know, I always tell people this is the adoption taking place, the financial, you know, this is where Web3 and blockchain are ultimately going, you know, building outside the, you know, traditional uh, banking circuits. Now, I realize we've been speaking for quite some time, Jimmy, and I know your time is limited, but do you have a few minutes to answer a few questions? I do. I need to go at uh, four o'clock my time. I've got another meeting, but uh, that's about 20 minutes from now. Okay. All right. So, uh, Vicki, I mean, I see Mark wants to ask a question. Yeah, sorry. Um, I think I was, um, I mean, I had a couple of things to say. Um, one of the things you said, Vicky, made me think about something a friend of mine said, you know, for a lot of people, this is their first conspiracy rodeo. So um, I think a lot of people are still kind of getting their heads around. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's real, isn't it? Um, I think a lot of people are, are getting around things that maybe we might sort of have a bit more clarity on. But as, I mean, I've been watching the thing that uh, Malone and those guys did recently. I mean, this is proper weapons-grade psyop that they've done we know that but i don't think a lot of people do anyway um the sec i think from what you were saying there jimmy it just made me think about regulators and regulators in this country i think it's just they're just it's, it's a name we, we we think that they are doing um something for the people i guess in some way i don't think they are i think a lot of them are captured and that's really me not being too much of a cynic it's just watching the kind of things that i i'm seeing and hearing them do um, and that's what it seems the SEC is. My question, I suppose, was about CBDCs and whether you thought that this was something of a stalling tactic um, going on. Not so much, or not only that maybe the banks are scared of what potentially is coming, but I guess they're trying to see off, you know, all of these other tokens um, because they are they are afraid of those things. Um, I suppose that's my, yeah, that's, that's my question. And I suppose, simply put, you're saying, hold what you have. Is that right? Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not giving any advice on, you know, what you should do with your assets. Uh, if you need to use them, you should use them. Um, if, if you're in a position to, to hold them until there's more clarity uh, in the regulatory landscape, that, that's, that's kind of what we're doing for the most part. We're trying to, to work within the rules and build new businesses uh, and use cases that, you know, are, are compliant without, you know, tripping across one of the, uh, the, the securities rules or some other, other rules. Uh, and it's, you know, in the current environment, it's, it's difficult to do. Uh, it's difficult to attract capital to do. Um, your observation is consistent with mine about uh, <laughs> the, the regulatory landscape. Uh, it, it seems more and more that uh, it, it, it seems to be a money-making uh, uh, effort uh, to, you know, um, use whatever resources you have available, typically taxpayer dollars, right, to, uh, to bring actions or 
or fine or levy you know these fines and fees uh, against against businesses that you know otherwise with a little more uh, with a little more rulemaking would have just complied with the rules and gone on and developed great businesses. As for CBDCs, um, you know my my thinking is, has evolved over the CBDCs. Well, it, it, the the bigger point I think you're, you're making very well is uh, yes, the the legacy banking system and even uh, I'd say the the financial apparatus of the of the corporations, so the large companies. Are, are completely blindsided by this paradigm shift in how uh, value is going to change. Uh, and it's it's very difficult uh, for them to wrap their heads around it. Uh, and and I mean, we, we, we have a consulting practice in, in blockchain called, called Valho Advisors that, uh, you know, we, we're regularly in communication with, with some of these uh, businesses. And, uh, you know, there's still a lot of people that are very high up financial positions in the world that kind of don't know what's happening. And when you start to talk to them about it, either their eyes glaze over because it's so complicated, they can't even begin to start thinking about it or it just completely freaks them out because they're like, well, there went my job. And so it's not really easy to talk to somebody who's like, oh yeah, you want to put me on my job. Uh, so for the CBDCs, yeah, I think I think part of this has been, uh, you know, to, to delay until the banking system generally was was caught up on the tech to be able to do CBDCs, I do I do think like Jennifer was saying, um, we've learned more about the intended plans of the CBDCs with this, uh, you know, whether it's programming social credit scoring in or keeping track of your carbon credits, how many hamburgers you had, whether you had a steak, you know, all that kind of stuff is not really going to have a lot of demand. Uh, from from people who think like me, uh, so yeah, I don't know if that's going to work out too well. Yeah, I just want to quickly say because I watched something with Alex Kramer made me think about something because he was talking about how that would create a, a kind of a second class where um, yeah. people who had the C, uh, CBDCs it, it would create a kind of a competition because people who had that people sellers or you know shop owners or whatever it is would then be competing for their business because they would be the people who had the means to let's say buy, you know what I mean? People who, who weren't yeah. in that sphere were then priced out or yeah. you know, just couldn't access. I also wanted to ask you quickly if you were able to say anything about, you mentioned Congress and there is a, is it Congress H.R.9157? I wonder if you could just say something quickly about that. I'm, I'm not sure about what bill you're asking about. It's a gold standard. Oh, the gold um, standard, okay. Um, yeah. yeah couple of uh <clears throat> there's a couple of, there there's this thing that you know uh like in in my world we very rarely talk about but it's 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 bigger uh in in other places which is this like nasara jasara type concept um which i first learned about probably in 2020 and just i remember slugging through the terms of it and thinking this is kind of a damn good idea like we should really be working on this, <laughs> but um, they're they're in Congress. They're ha you know one one of the the terms of that would be to return to the gold standard, uh, and I think it's uh, Representative Mooney who's uh, proposed a bill before Congress uh, to to the House uh, that that we return uh, the dollar back to the gold standard, 
hopefully most people know we we were on the gold standard since Bretton Woods, uh, which happened you know right after World War II, up until 1971 when Richard Nixon uh, kind of did his deal with with Saudi Arabia and took us off the gold standard and and went to what's been you know called the petrodollar ever since then, which is basically fiat dollars, but the 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 oil producing countries agreed for defense of their countries that they would um they would uh you know trade solely in, in u.s dollars for for oil uh so yeah that's in there there's uh there's another bill that's that's out that uh looks to abolish the irs and um replace and end the income tax and replace it with a consumption tax uh, a national consumption tax, so like a national sales tax. And all of those read together are kind of elements of, you know, Nasara, uh, but they seem to be completely independent, um, independent uh, things being put forward. Don't know the kind of traction that they're getting. Uh, I know I obviously, you know, I've been talking for the past hour here about my belief in moving to an asset-backed currency system and gold standard would be, you know, step in the right direction uh, from, from my perspective. Well, uh, listen, I uh, appreciate that. Thank you. And I, I wanted to ask a few questions uh, from, thank you, Mark, uh, for asking your question. Um, but on the comments here, uh, Charlotte had asked a few questions and some of these we had kind of sort of answered, but I just wanted to go back. Her first point was the concern around selling back, um, you know, selling the XRP back for fiat. And your your point here is that you're selling it back for uh, an ESDR that would be in the local currency. Uh, no, it'd be an, an international currency. The ESDR will be an asset-backed international currency. Sorry, Based yes. Changeable for any local currency. Yes. Okay. So on that point, and, and, you know, maybe there are other options of, I mean, would it, you know, maybe to sell back for gold or silver or other asset backs, or do you just think that could then be traded from the ESDR? The, the nature of an asset backed currency means that you can basically turn that currency in and, and get the denomination of the asset that it's backed by. Right. So I think Russia has, peg the ruble to, it's been a while since I've looked at this, but it's like 5,000 rubles to an ounce of gold or something like that. Um, and and so if you got 5,000 rubles, you can basically walk into the gold depository and say, I want, I want an ounce of gold. So this would be, it, it would be of that nature uh, that you could do that if you wanted to. I don't think... Um, I don't think you'll want to do that, really. Um, I think just the fact that the currency is asset-backed, it's going to be more stable, have more value, it's going to be perceived in the market, is having more value, therefore it's more in demand for transactions. Uh, and ESDR is really something that's used almost like we envision XRP would be used in the, in the future. It's almost like an institutional central bank level money. Sure. Um, well, that and, was kind of question with the poli sign and the accreditation because then I I mean to the point of the SEC yes but then also to say okay what if there was an, an you know accreditation that you had to go through um, to accept these ESCRs I see so, so 
we we actually have a different so that's a slightly different issue than I thought you were asking about before. We actually have a provision in our proposal that basically is looking for the governments or whoever's, you know, whoever the buyer is, it's the World Bank, IMF, Fed, whoever, uh, to, to, to effectively suspend or waive any applicable regulatory things that would otherwise keep a participating token holder from engaging in the transaction. So for the, for the purposes of this particular thing, the accreditation rules would not apply to a, a participating token holder. And further, we, we, um, we have a concern that, you know, um, you know, people, people change out of government all the time that maybe, you know, the, the government we end up doing the transaction with is a friendly government and they actually want to, they want to do this. Think think about it as like kind of the white hat government and they're like, we should do this. Right. And this is a good thing. And so it's a very friendly transaction, but then 50 years later, you know, things change and you end up with a government, not unlike the governments we've had more recently. <laughs> and, and they're more kind of adverse to the people. Uh, we, we, we've asked for an indemnity um, kind of from the government institutions uh, to protect us uh, from effectively, you know, um, some ad adversarial actions taken against us in the future. This is like years after the deal or, or maybe against your, your lineage, like, you know, your son. You're like, oh, you know, we, we get a we get an Obama type in there or something. It's like, oh, you know, uh, Jennifer Curie's son. What's your son's name? Sorry to pick on him. Sebastian. <laughs> and Sebastian, that's Jennifer's son. Jennifer was a big holder of XRP back in the deal. Because that's the way it'll be referred to at that point. And big, oh, deal? You're part of the deal? You know, and they try to go after him. But we, we, we basically have thought about that as well. And indemnity is like a, a fancy word for insurance policy, more or less. Sure. Wow. All right. Well, we have... I guess we'd have, I think we, we have just maybe time for one more um, because you have to get on your next call. So I don't even know, I guess we can just wrap up. Um, if anybody has any further questions around this, Charlotte, I realize there's two other points to your question. I'll follow up with you on those. If, if you are listening, I mean, hopefully we've answered your questions on, uh, on, on, you know, can we build outside the banking system? Yes, we can. And, and holding XRP safely. Um, there was a point that she was asking about where selling the XRP to fiat um, that most won't actually make it into the other side. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, the way they manipulate markets, um, you know, liquidating and then pumping and then consolidating and, you know, purposely keeping the price down many do get tired and they think, okay, I'm just going to sell off. Um, Jimmy, do you, are, are, are you like looking forward to, do you believe in this flip of the switch concept that will happen to the economy? I, I, I do believe that could occur. It, it, it seems like, you know, geopolitical events continue to kind of, come to some type of a they're, they're coming to some type of a climax uh and and i think that sure. uh you know whether that's a, a complete collapse of the the u.s dollar 
that, that causes you know mass global global panic or something. Uh, or there's there's bail-ins that are implemented globally, which I know have already started to occur in, in some countries. Um, I, I do think there could be an event of some type that uh, is both kind of cataclysmic to the financial system, but but also very unifying for the global population. And, um, you know, we come together and kind of get it done. And that would be a, a moment we switch over. Now, interesting thing of doing all these valuation models, we have this amazing model prepared by uh, Dr. Uh, Dion Backus in South Africa. And if you guys haven't seen that one, I encourage you to go uh, look at um, Molly Elmore's um, Twitter Twitter uh, history because she's posted an infographic on it. And there's a video with Dr. Backus on it. It's called the Pipeline Flow Model, uh, but he his model shows that if there was a if there was a flip of the switch moment and XRP skyrocketed in value that you know it may go up into six seven thousand dollars initially but then there would be a, a pretty dramatic crash uh, because you know holders would be kind of rushing to sell their XRP into the market in this dramatic you know price increase and after that crash. Maybe it crashes down in his model. I think it goes down to like eight hundred and sixty dollars, which for us today would still be pretty awesome. But um, it, it kind of goes down like that, and then then the the supply demand dynamics begins to hit equilibrium again, and you kind of start a slow climb up out of it. Uh, it's a fascinating model. So it's another thing that the flip of the switch process almost require. You know, look, they're looking at the same type of models. Uh, to to see what would happen if they just went to, you know, if they just flipped the switch, right, just let the market go. Uh, and they, they probably are aware that it would have that type of result. That's not something they can really go into. Imagine they put all their assets over it, $6,000, you know, that's the value, and then all of a sudden it goes down to 800 and they, they've lost, but, you know, 80% of the, the market value or something. So, uh it, it actually suggests there needs to be something like a price set, you know, a floor set for XRP in connection with a flip of the switch moment or buyback or, or something. They have to manage it somehow. Yeah, I agree. Well, listen, it's a few minutes to your call, and I would love to sit and talk to you for a few more hours. Um, but this has been fascinating, and I really appreciate you taking time to clear the air on some of the questions around the buyback. Um, and you guys, listen, if there's any other questions, just post them to the thread, keep you know, keep asking questions. Uh, for many of you, it was just nice to kind of bring Jimmy on and let you hear from him yourselves. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess, thank you, Jimmy, for coming on. Well, I'm, I'm grateful to you and I'm grateful for your time and everyone who decided to listen in. Um, we'll keep fighting the good fight. Thank you. We're going to record this and then post it to Podbean and then uh, circulate it that way as well. Awesome. So we'll let you know. Thank you. And hopefully have you back on. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a good weekend. All right, Vicki. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for taking time to join us. Thank you.